0: Well, again, take out your Bibles, and let's turn to Genesis chapter 28. Genesis chapter 28, and we will be reading uh, the whole chapter, so verses 1 through 22. Again, this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Pay careful attention to the reading of it. Then Isaac called Jacob, and blessed him, and directed him. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padam Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your father's uh, mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you, and make you fruitful, and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you, and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. (coughs) Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padam Aram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Paddan Aram to take a wife from there. And that as he blessed him, he directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Paddan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebioth. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night, because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he set it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on earth. And the top of it reached to heaven. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid. And said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, if God will be with me, and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my Father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of our God remains forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in Heaven, we thank You for this reading of Your Word. We pray, O God, now that You give us ears to hear as the Word is preached. Be with this Your servant. Uh, May we understand uh, the truth that is being given here. May we apply it to our lives. May the name of our Savior Jesus be glorified. Help us to grow in our knowledge and understanding of our Savior, we ask in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. Every believer's experience is marked out differently by the Lord. As we come to this 28th chapter of Genesis, we find Jacob's spiritual walk to be in a very dark place He is, of course, the heir of the covenant promises. And yet, as we may recall, he had stolen the birthright from Esau and had deceived his father, Isaac. Jacob, the heel grabber, was a liar and a cheat. And now he's on the run from his brother who wants to kill him. And he's on his way to Padden Aram in hopes that his brother's anger would dissipate and that he might find himself a wife, as his parents have instructed him. And Jacob's spiritual life, it seems, was on the brink. He's not starting out very well. In fact, it seems that he didn't have many of them, he, he has actually many of the marks of unbelief. That is, until God revealed His presence to him at Bethel. Jacob's eyes are opened by the Lord to things beyond the physical realm. He was given a glimpse into spiritual things. The place where he laid his head down to sleep, an otherwise ordinary place, is transformed into a stairway to heaven. A stairway between heavenly things and earthly things. Jacob experienced the Lord as God revealed Himself. His glory, His power, His covenant promises, God's sovereignty over all that takes place. And Jacob is left dumbfounded by this experience. He was in awe. And though he had a long way to go in his spiritual journey, a journey which has, by the way, some parallel to his grandfather's, Although he had a long way to go, he left that place as a worshiper of Almighty God. And he's he's a transformed man. The very picture of spiritual transformation which is seen in the follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, one who has gone from death to life. The metaphysical stairway of Jacob, this place where heaven meets earth, We'll see is later depicted by the tabernacle during Israel's wilderness wanderings. And that will later be replaced by the temple in Jerusalem as the nation is established in the land. But even the building was not the thing signified. The stairway, the tabernacle, the temple are but shadows or antitypes which find their fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man, who is himself the meeting of heaven and earth. It is in Christ and by His Spirit that sinners are transformed into saints, new creatures renewed in Christ. For Jesus is the only mediator between God and men. And so it is here in which we see Jacob begin his walk by faith. And he arises from slumber, a changed man, on a journey. A journey to a strange land, but a journey in which he's led by the Lord. And so our story, uh, our, the narrative, picks up in chapter 28. Uh, you may recall from chapter 27 that Jacob's mother had loathed the Hittite women. These were the wives of Esau. And she described Jacob or she, rather she desired Jacob to take a wife from among her own family. Who, these women who would be more willing to embrace the faith of their husband, unlike the Canaanite women who sought to seduce their husbands into their pagan lifestyle. And so in Genesis 27 and verse 46, it says, Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of these Hittite women, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? This comment was probably a very sore spot for Isaac, who favored, whose favored son Esau had already taken wives. He had already, he had already betrayed the covenant. One commentator notes this. Implicit in Rebekah's words seem to be a subtle rebuke to Isaac for his unmerited favoritism of Esau. A rebuke that is also calculated to ally any lingering uneasiness about his unwitting blessing of Jacob. And so we read, Isaac called his son Jacob. He calls him to himself and he blesses him and then he directs him. And so the unwitting blessing of chapter 27, that is the blessing of of patriarchal succession, here is a different blessing, though. A a farewell blessing for the journey which is ahead. Jacob instructs his his son not to take a wife from among... uh, Rather, Isaac instructs his son not to take a wife from among the Canaanite women, but instead... To go to this other place, to Padam Aram, to the house of Bethuel, who uh, is explained as his mother's father, and he is to go there and take a wife from among the daughters of Laban, that is his uncle, his mother's brother. Now, the force of the language here is a command. Uh, Isaac is saying to Jacob, You must not take a wife from among the Canaanites. You must not. Understand, this is not simply pious advice from the father. He's not saying, you know, I would really prefer if you didn't do this. This is not what he's saying. He's saying, you must not take a wife from among the Canaanites. He was not to get entangled in a marriage which would result in syncretism. That is the mixing of the worship of Yahweh with, the, with pagan worship. Don't do that, Jacob. There is this is a stark contrast with his brother Esau, who already was involved in a, secreti- a syncretistic relationship. Jacob wasn't to do this. He was to leave immediately. And again, the force of this is seen in two imperatives. Arise and go. So Isaac is stressing the urgency of the matter. You must go. You must depart. Because there's danger. There's danger not only because Esau was seeking his life, there's danger in Jacob's spiritual life as well. He was to go. Notice too, the instruction of Isaac to his son is the exact opposite of that which was given by Abraham to his servant when he was to get a wife. Remember, Abraham had sought a wife for Isaac and he was adamant that Isaac not go to that land. He was not to go to Haran. The servant was to go and bring a wife back. But here, Jacob was to leave the land, and he was to go. And when Jacob was to return, he would travel the same route as his grandfather Abraham had traveled when he came into the land. And so he's given instructions to go. Now note also the blessing. The blessing Isaac gave to Jacob, beginning in verse 3, invokes God Almighty, that is, El Shaddai. Which again reminds the reader of Abraham's experience when the Lord appeared to him and said this in Genesis 17. In Genesis 17, I am the Lord Almighty, El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless. And I make my covenant between me and you and and may multiply you greatly. So again, we see, we're reminded of the the covenant promises which Abraham had been given from God. Isaac prays here that Jacob may become a company of peoples. That is a a community, a nation. Again, reminding us of the promises which had been made to Abraham. That he would be fruitful. Nations, kings would come from him. Clearly, the covenant blessings promised to Abraham were to be realized in the offspring of Jacob. Look at verse 4. He shall take possession of the land of his sojournings that God gave to Abraham. So this is another uh, reiteration, again, of the promises which God had made to Abraham. The patriarchs were to wander without a permanent home for hundreds of years. They were to hope in the Word of God. They were to to live and walk by faith. Even as they did not immediately realize the promises made to them. They were to live as pilgrims, as it were. They were to live as sojourners in a land that they would one day inherit. And so Isaac's benediction to Jacob includes the promise that one day, one day they would indeed take possession of that land. But for now they were to live as pilgrims and sojourners. This kind of pilgrimage of life is what the life of faith looks like for the Christian, isn't it? We may not be wandering in a land, as it were, but we are looking forward to inheriting that which has been promised, don't we? Do we not look forward to the new heavens and new earth? Are we not inheritors of the covenant promises made in Christ Jesus, who is our great King? You and I live in the already, but not yet. We are presently citizens of heaven, heirs of the promises, but we await the consummation. You and I, then, as followers of Jesus Christ, can stand firm in this present world, walking by faith, trusting in the gospel, the good news that Jesus has atoned for our sins, that you and I, if you're in Him, belong to Him. We ought not to be tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of the world because our home has been firmly fixed in heavenly places. And Isaac, here, is preparing his son for this kind of life of wandering. A life away from the land of promise. And we know, too, that Jacob will spend 20 years away from that land. And then later, he will spend his twilight years again away from the land as his family goes down to Egypt. And through all of this, Jacob was to live by faith. He was to live by faith, which is what we're called to. But in Jacob's case here, he had a faith which was very shaky. It's a very shaky faith at this point. And so he goes... As his father says, he goes to uh, his mother's brother's, uh, or his uncle Laban goes to his household. Now, the narrative returns for a moment in verse 6 back to Esau. Esau thinks uh, he's figured out his mistake. He's perhaps been surprised to learn of his father's displeasure over his actions, After all, Isaac had always seemed to be pleased with his game. Esau had observed Isaac's blessing upon his brother as he was being sent away with instructions not to take a wife from among the Canaanite people. Jacob was told to take his wife from among extended family. And so Esau, as he sort of ponders this, it occurred to him that maybe this was his problem. He um, he had all his problems were his wives he figures this is the problem and this is at least partially true of course in reality the wives are not really the true problem, the problem is his own heart in his despising of the Abrahamic covenant Esau had married outside the household of faith and had been led away from the Lord Esau misunderstands the problem and so he sees a solution in finding another wife which might please his father. And so he figures, if I find a wife among the relatives of Abraham, maybe now my father will be pleased with me. If Jacob will please her father by taking a wife from Paddan Aram, then perhaps Isaac will be pleased if he takes a wife from among the Ishmaelites. So Esau diagnoses the problem, but he calculates the wrong treatment plan. Thus, in many respects, Esau is a figure of tragic irony. Esau was the constant family outsider. One who, on one hand, desperately wanted to belong to the covenant family, and yet on the other hand, despised the covenant family. He lacked the spiritual sense to understand what it is to belong to the family of promise. for the Christian to belong is to be in Christ by faith. Being a Christian is not acting a certain way or or doing certain things. The external activities are not as important as inward faith. In fact, the external activities of the man of faith, they're, they're affected by the internal, aren't they? Rightly. Esau didn't understand this. And sadly, many in our own day don't understand this either. They think if they you know, do the right things, you know, um, marry the right people, that suddenly that's going to that's fix their life instead of walking by faith with the Lord. And so in an attempt to please his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took yet another wife, Mahalath, who was the granddaughter of Abraham. Certainly he thought that such a close, familiar relation would be pleasing to his parents. Whereas Jacob was to take a wife from his mother's side, Esau sought to take a wife from his father's side. Now Isaac's reaction to the marriage isn't recorded for us. We don't really know what his parents thought about this. But the ramifications of it are seen much later. In Psalm 83.6, there's mention of an alliance between Edom and the Ishmaelites against Israel. Again, there is the tragic irony of Esau, who attempts to copy Jacob. He chose his wife among the rejected offspring of Abraham, which perhaps signals the totality of his own rejection. But returning again to Jacob, we read in verse 10, that he left Beersheba and traveled to Haran. Now the terseness indicates that Jacob was immediately obedient to the command to go. Remember, uh, there was an urgency that was given, and so he goes. He goes immediately. And his trip would retrace in reverse the route which Abraham had taken many years prior. And so behind him is Esau, who is laying in wait to kill him. And before him is the trap which his uncle will set... To deceive him. And on his way, he stops in a certain place. He's, it's getting on to be nighttime. And so Jacob takes one of the stones, he makes himself a pillow, and he falls asleep. Now, this otherwise ordinary place, in fact, the scriptures just say a place, right? It doesn't say, it doesn't say there's much, much to be said otherwise about it. It's just a certain place. An ordinary place will be transformed into a hollowed place by morning. And Jacob will call it Bethel, which means the house of God. J- Jacob's dream reminds the reader in some respects of the Tower of Babel. The text states in verse 12 that there was a ladder set up on the earth that reached to heaven. Now this is probably a series of ascending stones which form a stairway. If this is the case, then the picture is of a ziggurat, like the Tower of Babel, which reaches up into the sky. And the stairway, the vision, uh, was used by the angels to ascend and descend. And so here, what Jacob's vision is seeing is a direct connection between heaven and earth. Heaven comes down and meets earth, and the Lord is there. Yahweh is present. You'll notice that many translations say that the Lord stood above it. Now, this is possible understanding. The Hebrew can just as easily mean next to, but either way, the point is this. The Lord God, the the creator of the universe, is present in that place. He is the King of heaven and the King of earth. He is ruling and overruling, and yet He has communion with His people. So the imagery here is of heaven coming down and the connection of God, the Creator God, with men, along with God's ruling over all things. This is easily being seen as being fulfilled in Christ, isn't it? This is the covenant-making God who, has taken, who took flesh to reconcile Himself with sinners. The promises which he had made to Abraham and to Isaac are now reiterated to Jacob, and they will be fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. His death and resurrection secured for those who trust and rest in him in eternal redemption and a place in his kingdom. So Jacob's vision is a token, as it were, of what is to come. The intimate connection between heaven and earth, the spiritual and the earthly and so the promise made to Abraham is here again reiterated to Jacob. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Verse 14, your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed the dispersion of Jacob's descendants, this is a new feature of the promise. Not only will they be as the dust of the earth, but they shall spread throughout all of the earth. Again, this dispersion is an echo of the Tower of Babel, isn't it? Where humanity was dispersed throughout the world, but it's different here. Because here the children of Israel will be dispersed globally, but this will be a good thing. They will bring the gospel. They will bring the word of God to bear to all of the nations. So Jacob and the nation which will come through him shall be a conduit of blessing to all of the nations. Which is to say that God's plan all along was for a global salvation. For all of the nations to be gathered in. This was the plan from the very beginning. All the nations we brought into the covenant promised through these representative peoples. Thus, the children of Israel, the offspring of Abraham, are not merely by blood, but through faith. And the object of that faith, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so as the as a nation grows and matures and sojourns, God's promised to them was that he would be with them wherever they went. Look at verse 15. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. The Lord promised Jacob and his descendants after him that he would not leave them until he had fulfilled all that he had set out to do. God was casting his lot, as it were, with Jacob. He would stand with him throughout all that would take place until the very end, God's will would be accomplished. In many respects, we can see that this would absolutely need to be the case. Because unlike Abraham, Jacob, again, did not exhibit a vibrant faith. He was a mendacious scoundrel who cheated his brother, deceived his father to get what he wanted. Jacob needed God to remain with him graciously. And yet God's promises are secure. And Jacob, the heel grabber, will be transformed into Israel. Which means God fights. Because just as Jacob fought with God, God was going to fight for Jacob and for his people. This promise of never leaving until he has accomplished what he promised reminds us, doesn't it? It's very much like the promise that Christ gave his disciples after his resurrection. As he's giving the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28. Behold, I am with you always, what? to the end of the age. Christ is accomplishing in the church and among the nations all that he has set out to do until the very end of the age our savior has cast his lot with his bride the church and is fighting for us he is subduing all his enemies until they are made a footstool under his feet and it is fitting then that this for this reminder as we go out and make disciples of all the nations for this is the battleground of the fight is it not the hearts of men and Christ is to gain the victory as He calls His elect from every nation out of darkness and into His kingdom and His light. And when Jacob here awakes from his slumber, we see that he was in awe. He was in awe of all that had happened, realizing that the Lord, Yahweh, was here and somehow Jacob figured that he had stumbled upon some sort of special portal to heaven. This would have been a familiar idea in the ancient world. He says, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I didn't know it. It's almost like Jacob is kicking himself for his ignorance. How could I not have known? At the same time, though, Jacob is afraid. He was more afraid of this vision than he was of what was happening in his life, of what he was running away from. Here, he says, is the house of God and the gate of heaven. Now notice that Jacob makes two religious responses to the vision. First, he erects a pillar, a cultic stone marking the location of his dream. And then he calls the place Bethel, which means the house of God. Second, he makes a vow, in which he proposes three conditions with which God must fulfill, based on the promises made in order for Jacob to call the Lord his God. So Jacob takes a stone, the stone which had been his pillow, and he uses that to erect a pillar, and he pours oil on that. Now the pillar was to function as a witness to what had taken place. This was a very common procedure in the scripture. It was the monument to the heavenly stairway. This monument, though, was not thought to be a repository of God or of the angels, but rather served as a reminder of God's promise given in the theophany. It was a sign. And in the pouring oil on the stone, he was consecrating it for its sacred memorial use. There's no evidence that Jacob ever worshipped the stone, nor thought that God occupied it in some way. The stone symbolized Jacob's dedication to the Lord as expressed in his vow. Jacob's naming of the place used the same formula that Abraham had used in naming of Mount Moriah. The place was called Bethel, the house of God, though formerly it was called Luz. Jacob is the only patriarch to have made a formal vow, or at the very least, to have that vow recorded for us. If God will be with him, that is, provide protection, give him provision, bread to eat, clothes to wear, allow him to come again to his father's house in peace, then the Lord will be his God. Jacob's life has now been reoriented by the vision. Perhaps he had heard the promises from his father and his mother. Perhaps he even heard it from Abraham's lips himself. But he had not really heard them for himself. He had not ears to hear. But now God had spoken to him. And this journey, which had begun as a way to avoid being killed by his brother and to find a wife, was now a journey with theological significance. Jacob was now traveling to this foreign land as a carrier of God's covenant promises, as a man who was committed to the Lord, as a man who had encountered the Lord. And one day he will return again to the land of promise as a completely transformed man leading a burgeoning nation. The God of Abraham was to be the God of Jacob, and the pillar was to be a reminder of God's dealings with him. And as God blessed him, he vows to pay his tithe. That is, he would give a tenth of all he has. As, as the Lord continues to bless him, and the Lord will do so, he will give back to the Lord. It's fitting, isn't it? The grabber was to become the giver. Just as Abraham was. Jacob has been changed by God. Jacob had been transformed from a liar and a cheat into a follower of Yahweh who had sought to walk in righteousness. This journey began with urgency of avoiding his murderous, angry brother. Jacob was not walking with the Lord, but the Almighty God found him. Coming to him in this vision, in a place which is named Bethel. And Jacob is shown a vision of, that is of transcendence. He's shown the heavenly places. He he sees God's involvement in the world. He sees that God sovereignly rules and overrules the thing the, all, all the matters. And yet God was also pleased to call Jacob to himself. To give to Him the covenant promises. To give Him blessing. To give Him protection. And the Lord is still doing this today with His children. The Christian is one who has been forgiven of their sin. But much more by faith we have been transferred and transformed from death to life. In Colossians 1.21, we read this: "And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him." The Christian is one who's been transformed, who has gone from alienation and hostility to being made holy. And blameless. And this is a work that Jesus does for you. All of humanity has fallen short of God's glory. Each one of us is guilty of cosmic treason, having rebelled against the holy God, seeking our own way. But as Paul says here, we were alien and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. This is a life of unbelief, isn't it? This is a life which is committed to autonomy, that is self-law. But Christ has reconciled us by His death, so that we might be presented as holy and blameless and above reproach. Christ's death and resurrection then has secured for us, by faith in Him, an eternal redemption. Therefore, since we have been renewed by the Spirit, let us walk by the Spirit. Those who are new creatures in Christ have minds and wills which are renewed. And so if you know Jesus as your Savior, and you are resting in Him alone, then you have been set free from bondage to sin. You've been set free from spiritual oppression. And if you don't know this freedom, then we would urge you to turn to Christ and to know Him by faith. Jesus spoke thus, Come to me, all who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Live no longer under the burden of sin and shame. Find rest. Find refreshment in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. May your soul find comfort from the weirdness of this life. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, for the promises of your word. We thank you for the work that our Savior has done for us. That he is himself the connection of heaven and earth. That in himself, in His recon- he has reconciled men to God. That He is the only one capable of redeeming sinful men. For He is both God and man. Two distinct natures in one person forever. Help us, O oh God, to walk by Your Spirit. Help us to find our rest and our refreshment in our Savior, even Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in the name of our Savior, even Jesus Christ, and for His sake. Amen.